Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. Hi, and welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hi, Fred. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And we have lots to talk about and a great guest joining us, Stephen Schlatover of the University of California, Berkeley, research engineer. He's also chairman of the Transportation Research Board's Committee on Vehicle Highway Automation. Thanks for being here with us, Steve. Hi. uh, Thanks for inviting me to join. Steve, the TRB just held its annual meeting in Washington thousands of transportation professionals from around the world. Let's talk about some of the key takeaways when it comes to smart driving, self-driving vehicles. Yes, uh, the TRB had its annual meeting this past week. Uh, 14,000 transportation professionals from all around the world came together to talk about the current state of the art in transportation. And all of the meetings associated with driving automation had really big crowds. filled the rooms and had people standing in the back uh, eager to get in, Um, since it's obviously a topic uh, with broad appeal. uh, This is a meeting where we discuss things from a very wide range of perspectives, um, not even primarily technology, but also what are the legal ramifications? What are the implications going to be for future uh, mobility, for future and traffic flow on our roads? Um, So there many different topics that are covered there. Um, Strong participation by public agencies and researchers, as well as people from the industry. And we get perspectives of people who are interested in what are the safety implications going to be? What are the uh, environmental and energy consumption implications going to be? Um, How can we prepare the transportation system to work more effectively when we have uh, more highly automated vehicles available? Uh, We had a panel with some uh, survey results being presented about public attitudes towards automation, which um, we found there's quite a broad range of perspectives among the public uh, in terms of their levels of trust based on the experiences that they've had already with some of the collision warning and control assistance systems that are already available on new vehicles. People come away with different impressions from that. In many cases, they don't have a very clear perception of what it would be like to operate in a vehicle that has higher levels of automation. Uh, We also had a discussion about the regulatory challenges um, with a variety of people from different public and private interests who are interested in the future of regulations and how do you design a regulatory framework that can protect the public from immature systems that aren't safe yet while still encouraging innovations that would in the future provide enhancements in safety. That's a really difficult balancing act on the regulatory side. Uh, At uh, my committee meeting, we had presentations from Waymo and General Motors about some of what their thoughts on the introduction of uh, more highly automated systems. Uh, Not a lot of specifics, but uh, general interest in doing fleet operations, uh, offering shared rides to passengers. Uh, There was a lot of research going on looking at the effects that 
automated vehicles, both with and without connectivity, are likely to have on traffic flow. And many people doing analysis of that try to estimate what the effects are going to be on the future of traffic congestion. And also, what are the implications going to be for the future of travel demand? To what extent will people want to travel more if the travel is going to be easier? How do they make decisions about whether they would prefer to take a trip by using an automated system versus a non-automated system? Um, so throughout all of this, there are many more questions than there are answers. And the overriding theme is there are a lot of things we don't know at this point that we still need to learn about before we can have a clear idea of how automation is going to affect us in the future. We also uh, started the planning for this coming summer's Automated Vehicle Symposium, which is uh, co-organized by Transportation Research Board and AUVSI. And we started planning for the breakout sessions that are one of the key features of that. So there are many things going on where we consider this a hype-free zone. We try to talk about things based on what we can learn using the scientific approach kind of a contrast to CES where there's a big emphasis on hype. Well, of course, very nice thing about this business is that uh, the more we do, the more questions we we uncover to want to find answers to. So um, business is good. Well, a lot of focus, uh, as, as you've mentioned, uh, on, on Waymo. Um, any more of an indication as to when we're going to see them doing tests without having an attendant in the vehicle? Well, we have to be clear about an attendant in the driver's seat versus attendant in the vehicle. So they've taken the attendant out of the driver's seat and put the attendant in the back of the vehicle uh, for some of the testing that they're doing in Arizona right now. Um, it's not clear when they will have a high enough level of uh, maturity in the system that they can remove the attendant from the vehicle entirely. And I suspect they don't actually know that until they get further into their testing. Alan, I know you have thoughts about that, well, too. My takeaway was uh, I was uh, at, at um, Steve's committee meeting that uh, Timothy Papandreou and uh, Ellie Kaysen came and uh, and actually uh, gave a, um, a uh, progress report on what Waymo was doing and a uh, of course, Waymo focusing on uh, and and stating again what they've done, as Steve just said, um, in Arizona, which is a a major step to basically take uh, the attendant um, uh, out from not only the behind the steering wheel but uh, from the front seats uh, and providing rides uh, to the uh, volunteers that they've been. Uh, providing rides to uh, in the uh, Phoenix area and, and for the purpose of them uh, uh, getting um, uh, actual responses from individuals as to uh, um, how they feel when they're riding with no one behind the steering wheel or no one in the front seat. Um, but um, uh, the interesting thing that I heard uh, at, the, at that presentation was that um, uh, very soon, they will begin their Waymo driverless service uh, to the general public. Uh, to date, they've only been doing it to volunteers uh, that they had, uh, in some sense, pre-approved. Uh, but uh, 
uh, the announcement that I heard was that they will very shortly be um, basically providing DD Uber Lyft-like services in the um, in their geofenced area of um, of uh, Arizona um, to the general public. Uh, to which I then asked the, the very pointed question. Uh, will there be a uh, Waymo uh, attendant uh, in the back seat or uh, or in the vehicle? And the answer was that there will be uh, no Waymo attendant in the vehicle, which I've never heard anyone from Waymo ever say that or have not read uh, that they would be doing that imminently. Um, and uh, the second piece that I asked associated with that was, well, uh, will you have um, uh, telemetry services there so that from some control room or some situation room someplace, you can have Waymo uh, uh, personnel uh, monitoring uh, what's going on on a, on a close basis in each of these rides? And the answer was uh, surprisingly no. So that's just what I heard uh, to the questions that I asked. and um, and. Uh, I think that that's uh, uh, that must mean that they are extremely confident in the technologies that they've developed, uh, have uh, tested them sufficiently, and uh, are prepared to take uh, the step that is absolutely necessary if this is any of this is ever going to uh, provide mobility to the general public in, in any uh, amount. And to do that um, uh, without any uh, attendant uh, watching each and every ride, and to me this is this is major a major step to the eventual uh, commercialization of this kind of operation, and um, I can't wait until they announce that they actually did it. As I like to say, I've I've um, to date uh, uh, in the world. Uh, we've gone basically, as far as I know, only uh, 10 vehicle miles um, uh, or that order of miles uh, in a vehicle that has uh, no attendant on board, uh, just providing mobility to a, uh, a member of the public uh, on public roads. Uh, so um, right now, uh, as I like to say, uh, what I... Uh, um, what I call the Kornhauser scale, which is just the uh, the order of magnitude of miles driven uh, in a, a, a driverless vehicle uh, on public roads. Uh, right now, we're at a we're at a Kornhauser uh, uh, scale of one, which is of order of ten miles. But at some point, we have to get to a Kornhauser scale of nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Or something like that. If this if this technology is really uh, to provide uh, mobility to the general public, uh, that is significant. So um, we're still waiting for that uh, next step. And um, and um, what I heard was that it's coming very soon. But yeah, maybe I, uh, I yeah. wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about that last part because uh, based on prior discussions I've had with people at Waymo, I think their concept of operations 
uh, has the uh, remote supervision very uh, deeply embedded in the way they would operate even with a mature system. So the notion that there's not going to be a two-way communication link to a supervisory function and there's not going to be a supervisor overseeing that um, did not ring true to me. And I think we need to check that out. Well, we do, certainly do because I I would think that uh, one of course would want want to uh, to do that, uh, uh, and then at, at that point the issue comes, um, you know, what's the labor uh, implication of that? Is it uh, one person one watching one ride or one person watching two rides, four rides, sixteen rides, sixty-four? Who knows what and and how you know how fast that evolves. Right, and I think that is probably the progression it'll follow. Uh, when it first happens, it might be one-to-one -one or one-to-two, and then um, as things get better, that ratio will probably uh, change. Yep, I, I mean, I, I'm in agreement, but uh, it'd be nice to be uh, moving along, let's say, uh, that Moore's Law or something like that uh, of this, because again, uh, the provision of mobility is is the is the objective here. Well, one doesn't need to take the steering wheel out of the hands or pedals off the uh, out of the floor to get the safety piece. The safety piece uh, doesn't need that. The safety piece just needs to have supervision to keep the car from crashing or or going out of the lane. So, this isn't for safety. This is for mobility. This is this is the, this is the basically. Uh, substantially change how um, normal people uh, around the country and around the world would get around. And um, to do that, uh, the, the big step has to be uh, to be able to get the, the labor charge, the labor expense of that, of that uh, mobility out of there. And, um, and um, this, is, uh, this is the step that uh, I'm looking for Waymo to take. General Motors submitted a petition last week on Thursday to the Department of Transportation seeking permission to roll out the Cruise AV, which GM calls the first production-ready vehicle built with the sole purpose of operating safely with no driver. No steering wheel, uh, at least in the conventional sense. Uh, GM says it wants to deliver the Cruise AV next year. So, big news? Uh, yeah, this is big news because the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards have um, at least, you know, 16 uh, requirements uh, that there be a, a human driver and uh, the facility to have a human driver in the vehicle. And so the legislation that's working its way through Congress and what's been talked about up to this point is is to basically provide exemptions uh, to these, uh, the Federal Motor Carrier um, Safety uh, Standards, um, uh, such that one could produce a vehicle as um, as GM is um, is um, petitioning to produce. And so, um, as far as I know, maybe uh, Steve can correct me. They're the first auto manufacturer to actually petition to put into production. Um, at the uh, at the uh, exemption levels uh, that uh, are being being discussed in Washington with respect to manufacturing vehicles uh, that would um, not have a steering wheel and not have uh, um, the the various um, elements um, uh, to support a in, in vehicle.
driver. Yeah, so under the current rules, they can apply for up to 2,500 vehicles per year, I believe for a couple of years. Uh, there is legislation in Congress that would raise that ceiling in various steps up to as many as 100,000 vehicles. Uh, but the key part of the exemption process is they need to submit evidence to NHTSA to show that by uh, being exempt from those rules, they are not uh, making a vehicle any less safe than it would be if it conformed to the rules. And that's where things get complicated because uh, what do they have to put in that set of information to demonstrate that the automation software that they're using to drive the vehicle um, will be no less safe than a human driving the vehicle. Uh, and that's going to be challenging for uh, both the GM people and for the government people who need to review that application to determine how do we know that it's going to be no less safe. Yes, and I guess all of this will come into uh, consideration as the Transportation Department revises the self-driving car guidelines, and they're promising that for this coming summer. Well, but those guidelines yes, so are very general in what they cover. I mean, we're now at a case where we've got a specific example of somebody submitting an application that's going to have to be reviewed in detail. Um, the, the policy statements don't get down to the level of detail of how do you review this specific application that comes in. So, uh, so hopefully there will be an update of the policy statement, um, sometime during the coming year, maybe even by this summer. And but that, the important piece of the of the of the GM's uh, uh, petition is that, in fact, uh, we will then uh, have a petition in which uh, one does perform that review and one begins the process of uh, of actually doing this, as opposed to just talking about it. And they've let it be known that they have plans for a ride-hailing service using their own autonomous vehicles, and I assume this all ties together. Yeah, the, they would operate this as a fleet. In fact, I think they've been quite explicit that they're not going to deliver those vehicles to anybody else. They would continue to own those vehicles, and they would actually do the fleet operation for the service that they would provide. Yeah, that's an important piece. I mean, that's, this is the same thing that they did with the EV1 um, back with in the beginning of electric vehicles is that they maintain the ownership of the vehicles primarily in case things started to fall apart with respect to the vehicle, they would have a, a, an ability to be able to recall them all easily. Uh, that not being probably the only reason, but that being certainly a reason for why they're doing it this way. And they've also invested in Lyft, and uh, the issue is, is whether or not Lyft ends up being a participant or not participant in that on the operation of these things and so on, I think are all things that uh, we'll just wait and see as to what's most efficient and what's more most productive for them to actually go out there and, and test this in some real service uh, to provide mobility to the general population. I think I saw something implying pretty strongly that they were going to operate them themselves rather than through Lyft, and it would be yes, one or two locations. Yeah, yes, they, they have stated that, and, and, and certainly, but yes, they could also go other ways. But You know, reading the story or hearing about this, uh, people are going to have the impression that everything really must be in place then to, to make a self-driving cars for everyone uh, a reality. So let's uh, 
put a dose of reality in this. So what, what are your assessments of, of how accurate okay. those perceptions might be? Well, we really have to think in terms of what's known as the operational design domain of the system. That, that is, what is the set of conditions under which the vehicle is able to do the automated driving? Um, and there are many different dimensions to that. So what's the geographic scope of the area where it's going to uh, be operating? Uh, what range of weather conditions will it be able to handle? What range of traffic conditions will it be able to handle? Uh, what type of speeds will it be able to operate at? Uh, will it depend on modifications to the roadway infrastructure in any way, which could be anything from markings on the infrastructure to special curbs, special loading zones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and these initial implementations are going to be very limited in each of those dimensions. Uh, it's not a coincidence that they're doing this in sunbelt locations rather than snowbelt locations because they can't handle snow. And they're going to be looking for locations where the conditions are not too complicated so that the systems have a chance of being able to work. Uh, we're at the stage of crawling right now. We have to crawl before we walk, and we're going to have to walk before we run. But um, these vehicles are not going to be world championship sprinters when they first get uh, introduced. They're going to be crawling before they walk. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you can separate some of the uh, hype from reality, too. And you heard a lot of the hype, I guess, last week at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Uh, yes, there was a lot of hype at the Consumer Electronics Show. A lot of people want to uh, basically make statements that uh, that um, uh, don't really um, have a lot of hype to them. But but the person that, that is uh, hearing the statement all of a sudden expands it and uh, has visions of uh, of uh, being the world class sprinter right out of the box. So um, you know, uh, yes, there's. There was a lot of hype. There was also, uh, you know, some substance that, that was put out there. I thought that uh, that what Lyft did with Aptiv in terms of uh, offering some rides out there with the Aptiv system on the uh, on the Las Vegas uh, streets uh, was uh, was really pretty good. Um, I thought the ride was that I took was. Uh, um, I thought was pretty good. Again, it's it's crawling and not uh, not sprinting. That's for sure. Uh, but uh, but it was able to handle um, a number of uh, of what I thought were were significant challenges. Then again, uh, there were two people in the front seat ready to take over. Um, you know, if anything um, started happening. Uh, so um, the fact, um, again, uh, going back to the potential Waymo announcement on this thing, for them to actually go out there and do it without anybody uh, in the vehicle it would be a major accomplishment. Um, and a major accomplishment if they, of course, do it safely. It won't be a major accomplishment if they don't do it safely, but major accomplishment if they do it safely. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, there there were those, those elements of it. And... Uh, and I was really proud of uh, one of my students who's developed a system for, for um, NVIDIA that they uh, only provided some video demonstrations of driving around New Jersey. The interesting thing about about, about that is it's all done with with um, deep learning AI and um, and is uh, only with uh, with uh, cameras and, and images 
um, and not with LIDAR. And so part of the issue is, you know, to what extent does one need what um, um, sensors on the vehicles to be able to accomplish uh, uh, safe driving in, uh, again, which one of the realms, uh, uh, crawling, walking, or sprinting. And so um, uh, those were, to me, the, the major takeaways. A lot of other people wanting to uh, hook their, uh, uh, hook on to this um, technology star of, um, of uh, automated driving out there. And um, it's really transformed CES from, let's say, a, a, a bunch of gamers to a bunch of people who, uh, who are really trying to put, I think, mobility for everybody on our on our roads and highways. Yeah. All right. There's lots of car makers there, and of course, besides Nvidia, uh, some chip makers. Intel obviously focused on it too. Yes, uh, Intel focused on it too. In the end, uh, the compute power to do all this is non-trivial. Um, uh, and one has sufficient markets. I don't know if, if there are more potential vehicles to be built uh, than than gamers to be provided uh, better gaming tools. I, I I haven't done the counts on that, but but there are sufficient number of vehicles uh, that can take advantage of this. So we'll we'll see where the where the market really evolves for all this. Uh, at least the chip technology piece of this. Yeah. Although the number of vehicles, well, we can make light of it and say that, that the technologies are complementary. If if you're if you're in a self-driving vehicle, then you can be playing games. <laughs> well, well, that's yeah. I mean, I guess instead of well, keeping you from crashing and then um, keeping you whatever. Yeah. Yes, very good. But but the number <laughs> the number of vehicles uh, sold each year is uh, a lot smaller than the number of mobile phones sold each year. So it's still a big difference in those market sizes. Um, but I think also from what I've seen and things going on within the last couple of years, I think there's a growing recognition within the industry that to get to the higher levels of automation, it's going to be necessary to combine vision and LIDAR and radar and detailed mapping of the environment. Um, it's not going to be one silver bullet technology that's going to solve all those problems. And I know there are people pushing each of those technologies individually, but um, it, when you talk about the need for systems to be fault tolerant and to avoid common mode faults and things like that, um, you're going to have to have multiple technologies to perceive the environment. Alan, you mentioned a, a video shot by one of your former students uh, who's now working for NVIDIA that was shown at CES. Um, you now have the first results from analysis done by your current students on the opportunities and challenges of autonomous taxis, or as you refer to them, a taxi? Well, I, I think uh, we've been trying to focus on uh, on what the, what's the implications of mobility of, of being able to provide uh, on-demand uh, mobility at an affordable cost to the general public. You know, what are the implications? Of course, the long-term implications of this is that land use will change and, and there will be a whole host of changes that we have really, in some sense, no idea as to, as to what they would do. If you think back of the evolution from the horse to the car, who would have thought we would have a Levittown or, you know, the suburban development that, that we've ended up having? 
I'm not so sure. I don't think anybody pre-Henry Ford uh, sort of thought that. So, um, you know, the, the, the really big issues of land use, um, you know, are just, uh, are just really too nebulous at, at this particular point. So we've decided to just say, well, let's assume how would it support and, and what would be the implications on what we have today with the way people move around today with the trips that they take today and what would that look like across the United States? And so um, that's a that's a very, very smaller question than, than, the, than the real question, but at least um, uh, one might be able to infer some other implications by doing that. And it is really interesting. The first one is, is that, of course, uh, the issue is to what extent uh, or is there ride-sharing ride potential across the country and where does it tend to exist? And uh, and a lot of people uh, up to this point have believed that um, there's very little in rural America and uh, sort of in the... Um, in the moderately dense cities, there might be substantial um, ride-sharing opportunity. Uh, with respect to that question, what we're finding is that there are pockets of rural communities uh, for which there would be substantial ride-sharing opportunities. Uh, when you when you add that up across the country, that doesn't amount to much. Why? Because there aren't that many people in the rural communities doing all that much traveling. But there is potential for it in, in, in some of those. And then with respect to the cities, it looks like uh, basically uh, about the most that we're going to get with respect to providing a reasonable level of service to the kinds of trips, the trips that are made on a typical day in the United States is probably only 50%. Um, in my hopes, uh, um, hopes and my thoughts leading up to looking all of this in the United States, I thought that maybe we could have the opportunity to double um, average vehicle occupancy, but it looks like the number looks like instead of um, two, it looks like 1.5. So if you take the billion trips that occur on a typical day, about 17% are basically walking trips. You take the rest of those those trips and you get to to an average vehicle occupancy of about 1.5 um, or a factor of 1.5 over the existing vehicle occupancy is, I guess, the better way to say that. Uh, the other interesting piece of it, though, is with respect to longer trips. And, um, and um, there we're seeing, and, our, and we really have to, have to make sure that we don't have mistakes in our computations here because we are uh, looking over basically uh, analyzing a billion tri individual trips. It looks like that the, um, the Amtrak network of stations could in fact provide a, a great deal of mobility uh, if one can get people to and from stations and have uh, a frequency of service between those stations uh, that is um, uh, somewhat attractive. Um, not one train a day at 4 a.m., but, um, but something, uh, let's say, on the order of um, every, um, 
every 15 minutes or every 30 minutes. Now you say, well, whoa, uh, you need to bring a lot of people to the Amtrak uh, system to be able to uh, afford to provide that kind of, uh, of, um, of frequency. And it looks like you could. And um, in fact, uh, this uh, what people have talked about, first mile, last mile to transit, uh, that has a big impact also for which we have numbers for each of the transit systems in the United States as to what the um, uh, improved patronage might be if one had and provided uh, on-demand uh, first mile and last mile services uh, to all of the transit stops or rail transit stops. But uh, the more surprising thing to us is um, is the the play uh, of the Amtrak system. The number of trips, individual trips in this country on a typical day uh, that travel 100 to 400 miles is substantial. And a substantial percentage of those, those trips could, in fact, uh, be trips to the nearest Amtrak station and from the nearest Amtrak station to the destination assuming, again, uh, frequency of service between those stations, such that a significant increase in uh, the ridership on Amtrak nationwide would occur. And by significant, I'm talking about 100x. And it is really interesting. And from my, um, uh, from what I've read, and maybe I haven't read it, um, no one else has uh, even suggested that this kind of... Um, of mobility might uh, mobility opportunity might exist, uh, so we're going to be throwing it out there. The other major <laughs> factor is is in terms of utilization of the vehicles and the number of vehicles that you would need. A number of autonomous taxis to serve the, need, the demands nationwide. Looks like that number uh, turns out to be about 35 million. Um, so that would be the fleet size and the utilization uh, of the vehicles on a daily basis in terms of number of trips served and so on would be about uh, somewhere between 30 and 35, depending on part of the country and how you're operating these things. And then uh, some of the other things that we're currently sort of um, uh, trying to um, uh, add up are, you know, what are the the um, energy requirements because we've assumed all these vehicles will be electric and what's the then on the grid and so on, uh, because we've done the darn thing nationwide, including um, Alaska and uh, and Hawaii. So anyway, um, it's been a very interesting look um, at uh, at uh, at the way way future and future implications of this uh, just on the mobility basis. This assumes that in fact these vehicles would actually work; that they could be put out there, that they could be put out there. Um, uh, without the need of, uh, of a great deal of labor supervision, you're going to need labor to clean them. You're going to need labor to, to fix them. Uh, you're going to be late needing labor for, for, for marketing, for operations, and so on. But uh, in terms of the actual driving, uh, the people that we, we would be unemploying from driving would be ourselves. Right now, uh, uh, essentially, uh, you know, way over 90% of the, of the uh, trips on our highways are 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 driven by humans and those humans are working for free uh they're driving themselves and uh they're the ones that would be unemployed so 
anyway, um, that's kind of the quick wrap up on on what we're finding. Uh, so, and Stephen, I know you have questions about the 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 feasibility of of really getting more people and to accept bride sharing. And for yeah, some good I reason. think there are considerations of personal security that are likely to uh, make people reluctant to share small vehicles with total strangers, particularly when there's no authority figure there to uh, provide some sense of security. Uh, I've been in a variety of meetings um, where I've asked the women in the meeting, would any of you feel comfortable getting into one of those shared vehicles, say at night, if there's a single man or several men in that vehicle, you're the only woman. And um, that's a pretty uncomfortable situation. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable getting in a vehicle late at night if there were several drunk guys in there uh, who you know, uh, might be doing God knows what. So uh, this notion that we're going to get total strangers sharing small vehicles without an authority figure there, uh, I think requires some leap of faith. Yeah, and I agree, Steve. I mean, the, the, the ride sharing is really tough. The problem is, is if we don't, if we don't share rides, then, then if this technology really works as we've been suggesting it might work, then the disutility of taking a trip has to go down substantially. We don't have to sit there and drive and we can sit there and, and play games or, or be more productive. And therefore, my goodness, um, uh, the desire to travel is going to be increased enormously. And therefore, if we're only doing it as we do it now, basically uh, alone or dragging somebody with us uh, um, as a second person, um, uh, my goodness, uh, the, the vehicle miles traveled are going to just go through the roof. And um, and then we're we're going to have to deal with that congestion issue. So um, yes, uh, uh, ride share, ride sharing is going to be tough. Um, the only thing we looked at is is uh, are there people coming from about the same place, going to about the same place, in about the same direction, at about the same time. And um, and if you do that, then you see, well, you know, it might get up to one point five. Um, uh, but if all of a sudden you put in there, my goodness, everybody's going to be apprehensive about doing it, then of course you're going to stay at one. Uh, but in some sense, I think we all have to, uh, to, uh, ex extend, the, the, the me too stuff to say, none of us are going to be misbehave anymore and let's so stop all this misbehavior. Or maybe the algorithms are going to have, need to have to know enough about the the drive the riders that are about to ride and and just uh, put females with females and males with males and drunks with drunks and I I, I don't know um, maybe the marketplace will figure out how to how to do that whole thing but but ride sharing and and um, and trying to say my goodness you're, you're going from about the same place to about the same place at about the same time. Uh, geez, uh, do you really need to envelop yourself in all that sheet metal and whatever and and computers and LIDARs and so on for yourself or, or are you willing to share it? We do share elevators uh, for very short periods of time. Uh, and of course, we don't want, want to walk up the steps. So therefore, there's a great incentive uh, to just share those things. 
um, but we do, and we get involved in, inside the little capsule, and there's nobody watching, and we uh, grin and bear it. Um, um, I know it's not the answer, but it's maybe the beginning. It's a very tough question. And in some neighborhoods, people actually are kind of reluctant to share those elevators. Uh, I've been in places where people will uh, maybe wait for the next <laughs> elevator if they don't like the looks of uh, who's in the elevator when the elevator arrives. So uh, there are also some countries where the the where the metro systems have women-only cars during rush hour uh, to help uh, women avoid uh, unwanted uh, touching from the men who are riding the subways at the same time. Yeah, and and we may have to do that. I, I, I would just I I would just hope we we would just learn how to behave. I mean, come on. I, it, but anyway, maybe um. That's a very I'll nice thought. Old, I'll get too old, but you're getting old with me. That's right. We're all getting old at the same rate. I know, Steve. And that's terrible. So much to think about. But that's it for this edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We want to thank Stephen Schlatover from UC Berkeley and the Transportation Research Board for joining us. Find us at smartdrivingcar.com on SoundCloud and look for my tech reports at techstination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening. <laughs>